Um, I'm delighted to be here and to work through the Nicene Creed with you. We are, uh, I was asked to do this, and I think it's appropriate. We say the Nicene Creed every Sunday, and there are some parts of it sometimes we scratch our heads about and think, now why is that there? And so I think it's appropriate that we spend some time with it. So uh, let's look at the Nicene Creed here together. The Nicene Creed, on the next slide, and there, there will be several slides here to go through this, the Nicene Creed is what I would call one of the instruments of orthodoxy. In other words, it keeps us anchored in the faith, and it reminds us in whom we believe, and it holds us uh, to that truth. Uh, at the bottom, the blue section is related to this diagram I have on the right of the tree. Uh, the divine revelation is the most important instrument of orthodoxy for us as we affirm our faith that the scriptures are the word of God, the holy word of God. In fact, the Anglican Church of North America has this statement about the 66 canonical books of our Bible. We confess the canonical books of the Old and New Testaments to be the inspired word of God containing all things necessary for salvation and to be the final authority and unchangeable standard for Christian faith and life. This is why we devote our lives to reading the word and hearing the word as part of our service as well, but also weekly. And it uh, is not a separate authority, but all other authorities, all other instruments uh, of orthodoxy grow out of the word. The, these other authorities are not independent. So the next one, the red section, is the apostolic tradition. And uh, someone in the fifth century, by the name of St. Vincent of Lerin, uh, said that uh, in order to understand what is the orthodox teaching of the church, we not only have the scriptures, and he does emphasize that, but we also have what the church has taught everywhere, always, and by all. This affirmation of the universal church is part of what defines orthodoxy, and it grows out of the scriptures. And so then we also have, in the other section at the top, some other instruments of orthodoxy. And this is where the Nicene Creed comes in, but you'll see throughout the rest of what's said today how the Nicene Creed relates to the tradition and relates to the scriptures. And so therefore what we uh, affirm is uh, an orthodox a belief uh, of uh, the church that is grounded in the scriptures. We have instruments of apostolic succession. The early church, unlike today, was able to point to those churches that the apostles started, like in Corinth and Ephesus and in, or in Jerusalem, and to say, look at the succession of bishops and look at what was taught in those churches. That is... Um, that is what we have continued to believe in these other upstart new churches and these other upstart priests and teachers that are trying to teach something different don't have that apostolic tradition as part of what they... Um, they're not able to claim apostolic succession, rather. There are also confessions that the church has had. Right from the very beginning, you find some versions of this in the New Testament itself. Uh, in the second century... Christians were talking about the rule of faith, which is the basis on which the uh, creeds in later centuries were formed. Uh, and then baptismal confessions, 
the creeds that the Anglican Church of North America points to in, uh, in particular are the Nicene, which is what we're talking about, the Apostles' Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. And then also unique to Anglicanism are the 39 Articles uh, as another instrument of orthodoxy. The church councils, the, we, we affirm the first four church councils out of others in particular. Nicaea was in 325 AD, Constantinople in 381. And it, the Nicene Creed was uh, formulated at the Council of Nicaea and confirmed at the Council of Constantinople. So we're looking at something today that goes back to the 4th century AD and was affirmed by the church everywhere always and by all. And then uh, there are also uh, the uh, way in which we worship that keeps us anchored in orthodoxy. And in the Anglican Church in particular, the 1662 Book of Common Prayer and the rules about ordination, the ordinal, uh, and then also other things like the Jerusalem Declaration for um, Orthodox Churches in the Anglican world. Uh, back in 2008, just affirming again, this is what we believe. Now, why all of this? It's important to note this because we're living in a day and age where the uh, mainline denominations have been shaken by unorthodox teaching. And we need to remember that our orthodox claims that we celebrate and confirm here in this church are ancient. They go right back to the early church. They, they were not some uh, odd, odd group uh, on the side of what was the main uh, beliefs of the church, but also they're biblical. And that's, that's uh, one of the important things we want to note here today. Now let's move on here and just note what we're, we're talking about, a council that took place in that circle there, Nicaea, and then also Constantinople, which is present-day Istanbul. Uh, our next slide is going to um, just outline what we're going to cover briefly here. The Nicene Creed, I would like to suggest to you, is Trinitarian. And it is, secondly, an Orthodox confession, as I've been saying. It is a baptismal confession, and it was written in a context that wanted to exclude certain heresies. So that's where some of the particulars come in of the Nicene Creed. Why are they saying that? Because they had to. Um, and we have to figure out what they were saying because we live so much later th than that. But also, uh, it speaks to certain present-day heresies as well. So moving on then, we'll um, have a look then at how the creed is Trinitarian. This is the creed put up here at different colors just to show you how it breaks down into a section that affirms the Father, a section that affirms the Son, and then a section that affirms belief in the Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost, which also has other things added to it. And we'll be looking at that our third week um, uh, when, to understand those other things. Not only so, though, but the next slide shows that this is not some kind of formula that the church came up with in the fourth century, but it goes all the way back to uh, Scripture. And be, this week and next week and the next week, we'll have before us Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, which was read this morning in our second lesson. It also breaks down into the same threefold structure. 
and sometimes you might miss that, but notice that each of these sections ends with something like to the praise of his glory and grace. And that helps us see the section breaks. But then also in those, you can see the first section is focused on the Father, God the Father. The second in, uh, in him is in Christ, uh, speaking of what he has accomplished for us. And then in the last section, a reference to the Holy Spirit. And uh, if you're looking at that a, a little bit beyond what I just said, you'll notice that Jesus is mentioned in each of those three sections because we know the Father through the Son. We know uh, the Son through what the Father is doing through him for us. And we uh, know the Spirit uh, in our relationship to the Son. And so it's both Trinitarian and Christ-focused. And this is orthodoxy. Let's move on and have a look at how the Trinity uh, is to be seen elsewhere in Ephesians. And several slides here just to point this out. We're going to go over them quick, quickly rather than read each of them. But our access uh, to God is Trinitarian. Our uh, vision of the church as a temple that is being built up is a Trinitarian vision. Uh, the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our proclamation of the gospel is Trinitarian in Ephesians 3. And Paul's prayer for the believers is a Trinitarian prayer. Um, the next slide will show that uh, our confession is Trinitarian as well. And this is in a remarkable point in Ephesians, in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Uh, notice that the first verse, verse 4, has three pieces to it. A belief in one, God, one body, that's the church, one spirit, and also one hope. So three things said in that verse. Then the next verse has three things said, and this is uh, where we find Christ the Lord. We believe in one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And then notice their last verse uh, says one thing about God first. We believe in one God and Father of all. And then it unpacks that in three, three points. Uh, uh, we, uh, he, uh, I guess we moved on. <laughs> Are you trying to move me on? <laughs> um, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It just shows the interrelationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit but also the interrelationship of the triune God with our faith. And, and so this is a remarkable passage in Ephesians. And then the next slide, if we can, then, um, the, that uh, what Paul says about how we should live, our ethics is Trinitarian, and then our, that passage that we uh, are so familiar with about worship, um, being filled with the Spirit, is also Trinitarian. And so uh, how deeply the Trinitarian belief is woven into the entire letter of Paul to the Ephesians. You might want to go and read Ephesians um, this week because we'll be looking at it for the next two weeks as well and think about these points that uh, we're going over here about the Trinitarian focus. Okay? <clears throat> next. Now, the creed, the Nicene Creed that we'll be saying later, uh, as we always do on Sunday, um, then we see is Trinitarian, but it is also a statement of the gospel. And so it, it's 
two things. Firstly, it's a statement in whom we believe because it's Trinitarian. It's like a, um, a, a wedding vow. We're, we're, we're stating our vow to uh, God, our devotion to Him. Uh, we believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But secondly, it's a statement of what we believe, in whom we believe and what we believe. And here is where in the second section, this is for next week really, but the second section um, not only says we believe in Jesus Christ our Lord, but it, but it goes on to say something about Jesus. And when it does, what it goes on to say is that this is the gospel. This is the gospel. So it's a combination of uh, belief in the Trinity and the gospel. And so the creed is an orthodox statement of faith. We've, let's go on and have a look at this uh, emphasis of the gospel. We see this already in passages in the New Testament. These aren't all of them. But what these passages do is they pick up on several key points that were noted in the previous slide about the narrative of Jesus. It begins with his preexistence. It moves on to his incarnation, his becoming man. It moves on to his suffering and death. It moves on to talk about his resurrection from the dead. And then his ascension, and that's where we're located right now because it points further to the future, to his second coming. We live in the life of the Son. We are in him, as Paul likes to say, because we are in his story and in his person. And so this, uh, this gospel appears in various forms for various purposes as the letters are written to address different issues. And different aspects of these things are, are brought up. But this is the gospel, what we believe about Jesus Christ. Okay. Um, moving on to the very early second century, there was a bishop of Antioch by the name of Ignatius who on his way to be put to death in Rome wrote a number of letters. And in his letter to the Trollians, Sounds like something from outer space. Uh, the, he says uh, he's, he's having to counter the Docetists. Now, the Docetists were this group that arose that believed that Jesus wasn't really human. He kind of appeared to be human, um, but he wasn't material. He wasn't physical, and he wasn't human. And therefore, he uh, not only was not incarnate, but he couldn't have suffered. And not only that, but he couldn't have been crucified and dead and buried. And not only that, but he couldn't have had a bodily, bodily resurrection. It was all uh, uh, virtues and, and theory and uh, spiritual, but nothing material. And so Ignatius just recounts the belief of the church in response to this heresy of the Docetists. And notice how he does that in words that do remind us of our Nicene Creed. This is early 2nd century. This is before 120 A.D. Notice he says, the son of Mary. And notice he says, persecuted under Pontius Pilate. Why do we say that in the Nicene Creed? Well, we're countering the Docetic, Docetic heresy. And this comes out in our day and age where people deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, a professor recently wrote a book at Virginia Theological Seminary um, that just treats the resurrection as we all experience a kind of life-giving force within us. And that has nothing to do with the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the orthodox teaching of the church. 
Okay, let's move on. Uh, later in the second century, another bishop uh, from present-day France, the Bishop of Lyon, uh, was named Irenaeus. He wrote a really heavy, thick book against all the heresies that he knew about. And a number of times in there, he references what the church believes. In other words, we're moving to, the, to a statement of a creed that comes up finally in the fourth century. Notice how he begins that. He says, the church, though dispersed throughout the whole world, even to the ends of the earth, has received from the apostles and their disciples this faith what is believed everywhere, always, and by all. And then he goes on to state what is believed, and he, it's again that Trinitarian structure. One God, the Father Almighty. That's the Nicene Creed, making that statement. And then one Christ Jesus, and then in the Holy Spirit. And that section on the Holy Spirit is really long because basically he's talking about the gospel after that. Uh, that's going to be moved into the second section later on where we can affirm what we believe about Jesus Christ. But here it's that the Spirit predicted all these things about Jesus Christ. So notice we have different forms, but the same statement of belief. Let's move on. The, uh, this slide is uh, just to impress upon you that uh, early church father after early church father, bishop after bishop or Christian writer after Christian writer built upon one another to continue to affirm the Orthodox faith in these ways. And we could look at these various authors from the second century to the fourth century and see how the language remains pretty much the same. So we're dealing with a creed that is Orthodox in its statements. Okay? Then, <clears throat> so thirdly then, the, the gospel the, the creed is a baptismal confession. Remember I said, it, is, it answers the question, in whom do you believe? And as a baptismal confession, we can see this Trinitarian structure already in passages in the New Testament and also in uh, the second century. In Matthew 28, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, toward the end of the first century or beginning of the second century, the Didache or teaching of the Twelve Apostles affirms this Trinitarian statement. And later on in the first, second century, Justin Martyr says something similar. The church did what we do. We baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A Trinitarian baptism. Baptism, then, is an affirmation of in whom we believe. And every time we say the creed in our service, we're affirming our relationship to God. We're saying, we believe in you. We are personally committed to you and not others. And so that is part of what we do. Okay? Um, in the early 3rd century, someone named Hippolytus said, look, we've got these different practices that are coming up in the church. I want to write something that's going to pull us together and reaffirm what we have been doing all along. And so he, his, his writing is a very conservative writing to say, this is what we have been doing. And in that, he gives a, a description of a baptismal service. And it took, by the way, three years to get ready for baptism at that point in the early church. They wanted to make sure you really were a believer. Um, that doesn't mean that they weren't baptizing infants either, but the, the, for adults, this is what, how they handled things, new converts. 
it's Trinitarian, of course, as we've already seen. And so the questions are asked, do you believe in God the Father Almighty? Nicene Creed language. Do you believe in Christ Jesus, the Son of God? And then part of the gospel. And do you believe in the Holy Ghost? And notice also some other things are now added in the Holy Church and the resurrection. Okay? So uh, then the first thing that is said is that we believe in one God. And a couple things to note about this. Uh, one thing is that it is a declaration that we believe not in all the many gods of antiquity, but we believe in one God, uh, the Creator. Now, that is uh, over against the ancient Near East that believed in many gods, and it's over against the Greek and Roman world that believed in many gods. So in that cultural context, that was the significant thing. Nowadays, just stating that you believe in God is, is something, because many people do not believe in God at all. Um, but this is the reason for saying we believe in one God. But secondly, the statement that we believe in one God is a statement that the church is in continuity with the Old Testament. It's not a new religion. And it's not breaking away from the, the teachings of God's people, the Jews. But it, it continues to affirm that. And that language of one God comes right from Deuteronomy 6, which became uh, a saying that the Jews used to say regularly, uh, called the Shema, that they believe in one God. So the church affirms that too. And our doctrine of the Trinity is not a doctrine that we believe in three gods, but it's a doctrine that we believe, we believe in one God in three persons. It's not one plus one plus one, which would equal three, but it's one times one times one, which equals one. Uh, we believe in one God, one substance, as Tertullian suggested we use the word, in three persons. Substance and persons was used by the early church to articulate the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, some uh, are tritheists. Uh, Muslims think Christians are tritheists. It's important that we explain to them that we're not. But secondly, some, some groups like the Mormons are tritheists. They talk about purpose and unity and mission, but not one God, one substance. So this is where we, uh, the Orthodox Church disagrees with a current uh, issue. Okay, let's move on. Um, the next statement is that we believe in the Father Almighty. The Father Almighty. And this, this is language that shows us a personal relationship to God. We can call him Father. But it also shows us a, belie a belief that God is all-powerful. And therefore, we can turn to him for our needs. Uh, he not only is intimately involved with us in love, but he's intimately involved with us in sharing his authority and power uh, for us. This is our affirmation. Now, the language of Father, God as Father, is found in the Old Testament, and it, it, it brings out various image, re, uh, ideas. God is Father because he is the creator. He is personal. He is caring, giving protection to his people. He's compassionate and merciful. He gives an inheritance to his offspring. Uh, and he uh, is uh, one who will discipline us to bring us back to, to live rightly. This, these images, the image of Father captures all of this. But in the New Testament, the language of Father appears everywhere. And it becomes characteristic of the Christian church to affirm 
that God is Father. Why is that? It's because of the revelation of the Father through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, we come to know God in a more intimate way than just stating that he is creator or that he is almighty. But he is one who lovingly does what a father would do for wayward children. And that becomes the cross itself. So we affirm God as Father as well as Almighty. Uh, the language of heaven and earth in our statement in the beginning of the Nicene Creed um, is Jewish language. And Greco-Roman language of the visible and the invisible means the same thing. Uh, so uh, both uh, bits of language are, are, are reproduced here. Okay. Um, God as creator, then, to focus on this a bit more, uh, picks up not only Jewish and Greek and Roman language to talk about God as creator, but it also counters a heresy. In the second century, the second half of the second century and beyond, there was an, an, another heresy called Gnosticism. And we probably have all heard of Gnosticism, and some of us might know what it is. In actual fact, there are many forms of Gnosticism. Um, but they, they took this uh, idea um, as, as, as their core belief, that the spiritual world is good and the material world is bad. And the way they talked about this was they, first of all, believed in lots of spiritual beings that kind of emanated from one another. And then one of those spiritual beings, and it's sometimes called the Demiurge, it is in this quote from Irenaeus, one of these spiritual beings decided, I'm going to imitate the spiritual world and I'm going to create a material world that kind of mirrors it. And that was bad. So the goal for Gnostics was to get away from the material world. So uh, their vision of how things work is in that box that there are these spiritual beings and then there's this bad material world. So when we affirm that God, the one God, made all things visible and invisible, first of all, it's separating him from all those other spiritual beings. And secondly, it's uh, making a statement that it's good. It's good. Creation is good. It declares the glory of God, and we are part of that and part of his purpose. And so that's one of the things that is going on in the early church and we might want to remember that, too. God created the world. Uh, it was out of his good purposes, as Genesis 1 says. And he saw that it was good, and it repeatedly stated after each day of creation. Okay? So then uh, our statement is brief about God the Father, as in what it, which is in our focus this morning. The point has been to show that it is orthodox, that it is biblical. Um, it, it's not something additional to what Scripture says, but it's an affirmation that takes on some language of importance as the church is struggling through some of the misunderstandings of faith in the early church, some heretical teachings. One thing, though, in our passage from Ephesians that we get more of than the creed offers us, is to show us God's, um, more of God's intimate love for us, his plan for us. 
and uh, the statement in the creed uh, does come to that with the word Father. But in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, notice how these various five points um, can, can uh, show us that God is relational, God is personal, God is intimately involved in our lives, and he um, has acted for our salvation. In uh, Sudan, uh, South Sudan, uh, the, there are creation stories. One of the creation stories is that originally there was a rope between heaven and earth. And every day human beings would climb up the rope and spend the day in heaven with God, the creator, and then come back down. And then one day, and there are two versions of the story, a bird cut the rope. Uh, peck the rope away. Or, second version of the story, and you're going to laugh at this one, a woman did it. <laughs> um, and uh, the, the idea here is that now we are so separated from the Creator God that we have no relationship with Him. And in African animism, the fear and the issue that you have to deal with in religion is uh, the ancestors. Those people who had lived among us and then died and they go on to this other world but they're they're bothersome they cause trouble and and you have to uh, honor them and worry about them but you don't really have to worry about the creator god what a different understanding we have as christians god is not just this faraway being who created the world but god is one who is intimately involved with each of us and wants to have a personal relationship with you and you and you and you and you. And he has done that, notice the second point, through Jesus Christ. We know the Father through the Son. And it's into that relationship that we are called. So let's wrap this up then uh, for today, but note that we will continue as we look at the other parts of the Creed and especially next week by looking more at what the Son has done to bring us into close relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And it is in the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we, uh, we worship this morning. Amen.